Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Cosmos in You. This is your host, Susanna Scully. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm excited to have you here. Quick note of business before we jump into today's episode. Uh, For those of you who had not signed up for our newsletter yet, head over to our website, www.cosmosinyou.com, and a a pop-up will jump up and you can put in your email and that way you'll never miss a podcast episode. I email them out every time I have a new podcast up and I know a few of you have mentioned that um, you've missed them and want to stay on top of it. So that's a great way to do that. All right, now into today's episode, which is so fascinating. I'm very excited to bring this to you. Today we have Stephen Browdy, who is a retired professor of philosophy and chair of the department at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. He is currently editor-in-chief of the Journal of Scientific Exploration. He studied philosophy and English at Oberlin College and the University of London, and in 1971 received his PhD in philosophy from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. In addition to more than 60 philosophical and scientific papers, he has also written six books. So I recommend checking those out at Amazon and we get into, I think we touch on almost all of them in this podcast as well. So in this episode, we discuss ways to access optimal states of being, the role that multiple personality disorder plays in understanding the afterlife, why hypnosis is so powerful in accessing latent parts of ourselves. This I found really interesting because I really have not studied much about hypnosis at all. So this was a really interesting topic. And finally, the dark side that our thoughts may play in creating our everyday reality. Oh, so, so, so interesting. So without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, as I was just mentioning in the pre-interview, you have such a wide breadth and depth uh, of knowledge and expertise in your work um, that, as I mentioned, we're going to see where this conversation goes because I think there's so many fascinating areas it can go into. But why don't we start out with having you tell our audience a bit about you, your background, your journey, and what you're up to today. Well, I assume that what you really want to hear about is how I got into this predicament that I find myself in at the moment. <laughs> it, it started back in graduate school. I was, at that time in my life, I was a hard-nosed materialist, but not for any particularly good reasons. It was just a kind of intellectual conceit I was cultivating in those days. And it was a slow day in Northampton, Massachusetts, and a couple of friends came over and uh, we'd seen the only movie in town. And they said, well, let's play this game called Table Up. And what they meant was, let's have a seance. Hmm. Now, I knew nothing about that. And in fact, my friends knew nothing about parapsychology, but they played this table rising game uh, many times. And they said it was a lot of fun. So um, for the next three hours in my house in broad daylight, I watched my table tilt up and down in the air. Hmm. Uh, and frankly, it scared the hell out of me. And I, I didn't know what to do about it. I had no place in my conceptual framework for that at the time. 
And I was busy writing a dissertation on temporal logic, and there was really no place in my career for that <laughs> at the time. And I knew I couldn't really talk to my mentors about it. So I, I literally put it out of mind until I wrote my dissertation, got my PhD, got a job. And for the next five or six years, I did, I think, relatively decent uh, mainstream work in philosophical logic and the philosophy of time. And then I got tenure. And I remembered at that time what had happened to me back in grad school. And I figured if I was an honest philosopher and intellect, I needed to come to grips with what I had seen. And I should tell you that I was convinced that the three hours of table lifting that I had seen were genuine. My friends were not practical jokers. Um, it was in broad daylight. It was my table. We had plenty of opportunities to examine the phenomena while they were occurring. And so I thought about what had happened to me back in grad school. I knew that some very famous philosophers had taken parapsychology seriously, so I read what they had to say about it. I determined that there was really something for me to sink my philosophical teeth into. And then I realized that if I wanted to do a responsible job of this, I needed to become a member of the community of academics and scientists who were up to date on the phenomena and studying it seriously, so I at least knew what I was talking about. And I did that. I guess I'm now about as much of an insider as it's possible to be. I'm uh, past president of the Parapsychological Association. I've written all these books. And so when I started out, I had the very familiar and more or less received view that if there was any re respectable evidence in parapsychology, it would come from the laboratory, from classical experiments. And so I wrote my first book, ESP and Psychokinesis, on the laboratory evidence in parapsychology. And by the time I finished with that, I realized that there was all this other evidence that I knew nothing about and which most people, even parapsychologists, were dismissing. And I started studying the evidence from physical mediumship and from macro psychokinesis generally. And it bowled me over. I realized that this evidence was much better than even most parapsychologists realized. So I produced my next book about those types of phenomena, and that was called The Limits of Influence. And having gotten that out of the way, I knew at, at some point I wanted to write a book on the evidence for life after death, but I wasn't yet chronologically challenged enough for that to be really imperative. Um, and I also knew that a lot of what we see in cases of dissociation, hypnosis, and multiple personality looks a lot like what you see in many cases of mediumship. So I figured if I was ever going to do a, a decent job on the evidence for life after death, I needed to know something about dissociative phenomena. And multiple personality was intrinsically interesting anyway, and I was interested at that point in problems of psychological explanation. So I became um, very deeply engrossed in the evidence for multiple personality and the history of psychiatry and the history of hypnosis and wrote a book called First Person Plural, which deals primarily with all of that. And then I felt I was chronologically challenged enough to write a book on life after death and produced a book called uh, Immortal Remains. And at that point, uh, I realized it was about time in my career to write a memoir. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a book called The Gold Leaf Lady, which is really just a series of adventures and misadventures in trying to investigate the phenomena of parapsychology, but which covers in many ways, the very best case I've ever examined, and that's the case of the gold leaf lady, a woman whose body would break out spontaneously and instantaneously in a golden-colored foil. 
in a foil. Foil, yes. Like um, the wrapper of Hershey's Kisses, but mm-hmm. much finer. <laughs> and we can talk about that. If yeah, you want. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then most recently, I wrote a book called Crimes of Reason, which is really a collection of essays, some old and expanded and revised and some new. Uh, the point of which was to bring together a bunch of what I thought was some of my best work, but which appeared in widely scattered incarnations and uh, whose connections would be very difficult to see otherwise. So I wanted to put it all together and sort of wrap things up philosophically about where I am at the moment. And w- and what was that? When you wrap that up where you're at at the moment, how would you describe that now to us? <laughs> um, in one sentence or less, just kidding. <laughs> Well, I'd say I've carved out what seemed to me to be respectable positions about the nature of psychological explanation, the nature and limits of human abilities, um, the limits and the flaws in mechanistic thinking about the mind, whether it's materialistic or otherwise, and just pulling all of that together. And when you say the flaws of the mind, what do you mean? Well, it's the flaws in mechanistic thinking about the mind. I mean... Many people like to point to errors, what they feel are errors in various forms of materialism or physicalism about the nature of consciousness. But as far as I'm concerned, the major flaws are not so much that the theories are physicalistic, it's that they're mechanistic. And that is that it treats conscious states as fully explainable analytically in terms of uh, lower level processes or mechanisms. And the flaws in that kind of thinking don't have to do with the fact that the hardware here is physical. Um, mechanistic thinking permeates other areas of uh, philosophizing, philosophizing as well. It could be dualistic. It could be idealistic. I think mechanistic errors creep into such things as Rupert Sheldrake's views of morphogenetic fields, for example. So I'm going to back up for a moment. If our audience feels lost, because <laughs> a lot of people are new to this, um, and so if you don't mind breaking down the difference that I, I believe that you're talking about, the difference of people that believe that the brain creates consciousness versus consciousness exists outside of the brain. Is that right? Um, not so much that. It has to do with whether conscious states can be best explained entirely in terms of lower level processes, whether they're physical or whether they're lower-level mental processes. It really has to do with how we explain what goes on in the mind. And most scientists believe, and I think actually this is okay, that um, analytic explanations of phenomena, that is explanations in terms of lower-level processes. What are lower, so I'm going to stop you for a moment. What are lower-level processes? What do you mean? Well, for example, what we, we explain heat in terms of molecular motion. So we explain the phenomenon of heat in terms of what's going on at the molecular level. That would be an analytical explanation. Okay. Okay. So many people think that we could explain mental processes or explain behavior in terms of things happening at a lower level of phenomena, in terms of processes in the brain or even just in terms of lower level mental states of one kind or another. All right. So, so meaning it, explaining thoughts or emotions, et cetera, uh, explaining them as what happens with the neurons, what happens actually in the brain from a physical standpoint. Is that what you those, mean? Those would be kinds of lower level explanations. Okay. Got it. Explanations. Okay. So most scientists believe that these kinds of explanations can't continue forever, that sooner or later we're going to have to come to fundamental ground level primitive phenomena. And at that point, 
it no longer pays to ask how the phenomena occurs. Those are just the ways the universe works, and nothing at a lower level explains why. Mm. Now, that I think is okay. There, there have to be primitive phenomena somewhere. What I object to is the idea that wherever these primitive phenomena are, they're always at the lower level. They're always below the, le- the observable level. They're not at the level of behavior. They're not at the level of conscious states, of experienced states, for example. I call that the smallest beautiful assumption. It's nothing we know to be the case. It's just an assumption. It's not an empirically established fact. And I think there are lots of good reasons for believing that um, the smallest beautiful beautiful assumption is actually false. One of the things I tackle in various of my writings is why I believe that to be the case. It's not easy to explain very quickly. Uh, for those who want to see what I have to say about that, in Crimes of Reason, for example, I've written a chapter on um, why I think memory trace theory is incoherent. The idea that memory is to be explained in terms of engrams or traces in the brain. What's I actually qu- think it's nonsensical. Okay, so again, for audiences not familiar, what is memory trace theory? And when you it, say, so really break it down. What is memory trace theory? And when you say in, in um, n-grams, tell, what do you mean? N-grams is just another name for traces. Okay. Um, the idea is that I can't remember who you are from one day to the next unless you left somehow or other a trace in me which can be triggered by some appropriate stimulus later on, which makes it a memory of you. For example? Well, I can't give you an example because I don't think traces exist. Ah, okay. It's it's the idea that unless there's some trace in my brain, whatever mental states I have about you can't be a memory of you. A memory of you has to have the appropriate underlying causal history and that's explained in terms of some physical remnant of you left inside ah, me, which when triggered makes it a memory of you. So I can remember my high school graduation, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that? That's because the event of my graduation, we're told in memory trace theory, leaves something in me, some residue, some trace, some physical, physiological modification of my brain, presumably, which when activated will allow me to remember my high school graduation. Otherwise, it's a complete mystery how I could remember um, my high school graduation. Now, That's memory trace theory. Okay, and it, and that is a theory. It is not it's a theory. Okay. Scientists speak about it as if we know there are traces in the brain, but that's complete nonsense. We know nothing of the sort. They have in no way pointed to a place or anything of this. No, no. It's not as if we've located traces. It's a complete theoretical entity. And you think instead, in contrary, you think you remember your high school graduation because what? Well, first of all, I'd say memory trace theory is just bad philosophy dressed up in technological jargon. Okay. It relies on a view of similarity, which is actually completely incoherent. It requires mental states or states of the brain to be intrinsically similar to other states. But the whole idea of intrinsic similarity is nonsense. No two things are intrinsically similar or dissimilar. They're only similar or dissimilar relevant to various criteria, which are relevant from one occasion to the next. And those are things we determine. So what I would want to say is that memories are among those phenomena which have no analytical explanation, no explanation in terms of lower level processes. Mm. Humans have the ability to remember, to be sure, but we're not going to understand it in terms of 
um, some mechanistic underlying process, whether it's physiological, physical, or something else. It's memory trace theory is as crude a theory as Plato's idea that memories are like impressions of, in wax. And so instead, you think, um, you're theorized that it is out, outside of us, that there is some, now I think this is where you no, bring in shelter. Oh, no. Okay. Go ahead. What do you think? No, I think it's completely part of us. We have the ability to remember, mm -hmm. but it's just part, it's one of those fundamental features of our, our, our mm -hmm. organic organization. And so does, this is when you bring in Shel Sheldrake's uh, morphogenetic fields? Would this well, be an appropriate time? Or tell us for, for our listeners and for me, frankly. We're going into the hardest stuff here. Are, are we? <laughs> Just going right in. <laughs> um, what What is the morphogenetic field? Um, oh, my God. Is it too far? Uh, are we going too far? <laughs> I wouldn't recommend this as a way to go. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. But, but don't let me discourage people from looking at my book, Crimes of Reason. Okay. <laughs> All right. I don't do it in gory detail. All right. All right. Great. Um, so coming back to, um, in talking about your different books, sure. um, one of the things I was interested in is you talked a lot about multiple personalities. Yes. Um, and what you learned from that. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, it, it actually connects with some of what I learned when I did my research on post-mortem survival, because it reminded me, again, um, just how interesting living human beings are. Mm. Uh, and what I think, among the things we learn about the nature of humanity from the study of dissociation generally and multiple personality in particular, has to do with the latency of various human abilities. Um, I don't think most of us have a clue what we're really capable of under um, unusual circumstances and dissociation can be among those unusual circumstances that unleashes various capacities we might not otherwise discover in ourselves. So that's why people can do various creative uh, achievements under uh, hypnosis, which they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. It's why multiples can exhibit various abilities, creative and dramatic abilities that they might not have had access to uh, if they didn't have the kind of traumatic history that allowed them to develop them. Oh, so many questions to go off here. So the first one that comes to mind when you say traumatic experience, because I know that is primarily, if not the reason where people's personalities split, is that correct? Something correct. traumatic happens. Okay. Um, and so in order to cope with it, they develop multiple personalities. But it, it's only going to be people who are good dissociators in the first place. I mean, lots of people suffer trauma, but don't become multiples. Mm -hmm. They might develop various other kinds of dysfunctions, you know, like sexual dysfunctions or uh, various kinds of obsessions, but not dissociate. And so, for example, when you say what we're capable of, I'm imagining that certain multiple personalities where they could speak another language or they can play instruments, they could, right? Is that what you're speaking of? Yeah, that kind of thing. Let me give you a good example. Okay. There was a 19th century Swiss medium named Helene Smith who um, believed she was, as a medium, communicating with residents of the planet Mars. And... To communicate with the residents of planet Mars, she created 
an entire Martian language, both written and spoken, internally consistent, very elaborate letters in the written language. Um, it turned out to be modeled um, entirely on her native French, but this was a creative tour de force. And of course, she wasn't communicating with residents of Mars, mm -hmm. but the fact that she was able unconsciously or subconsciously to develop this very elaborate and utterly consistent language is quite remarkable. Hmm. And I imagine there's uh, there's so many cases of this, um, of language and um, feats. Now, um, so if you take that and now you were in earlier, you were saying of what we're capable of in hypnosis. Tell me more about that. Well, I mean, we know, for example, how stage hypnotists get people in the audience to behave in very silly ways and, mm -hmm. and do things that they might otherwise be too inhibited ever even to try. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example. Psychiatrist David Spiegel at Stanford uh, was talking to a TV anchor woman in your area, in the Bay Area, a number of years ago. And she said, you know, we have all these channels or mediums out here. Some of them have to be genuine. And Spiegel said, show me anyone who's highly hypnotizable and I'll make that person a channel. And so she volunteered her cameraman. <laughs> and Spiegel made this movie where he hypnotizes the cameraman. And suddenly this guy's entire affect changes. And he starts claiming he's uh, an intergalactic being of some kind. He says, you know, greetings, friends. My name is Zantac or whatever it was. You know? and, says, um, and then he starts spouting all these new age platitudes. So what this shows is this is a kind of dramatic capability that the cameraman, I'm sure, didn't realize he had within him either. And I, I should add, this doesn't show that all channels are just uh, self-hypnotizing, self mm -hmm. but it shows why it's not just an academic ac exercise to consider that possibility. And so what actually happens in hypnosis? Uh, yeah, that allows Well, I us think the way to describe it is that, you know, hypnosis can allow us to bypass various kinds of resistances to our optimal functioning. And I mean, there are lots of things we don't understand about human abilities, including what a what an ability is. That's one of the things I write about in Crimes of Reason. But in order to get a grip on that, I think we need to look at what used to be called idiot savants. We need to look at prodigies. Um, and these are areas of research that I think have many interesting connections to various other domains within parapsychology, including the evidence for life after death. and. These are areas that I think are not sufficiently well explored. It's one of the things I tried to do in uh, Immortal Remains. So how does that, how, what is the link there between life after death with, um, for example, uh, savants or that you just mentioned? What, what do you see as links? Well, a lot of people think that when you get evidence of mediums demonstrating kinds of abilities, uh, when, uh, uh, an apparent spirit is overtaking them. Mm -hmm. That this shows that it must really be a case of spirit possession of one kind or another. But I think that's actually a simplistic way of going about it. Until we have a firmer grasp of um, what's going on in the case of savantism or prodigies or uh, just good old-fashioned dissociation and hypnosis, um, we need to be very wary about 
assuming that we're not just seeing various kinds of human creativity supplemented by uh, perhaps a little bit of ESP along the way. And one of my favorite cases that illustrates this is a case of a early 20th century housewife from St. Louis named Pearl Curran, who initially through a Ouija board and then through automatic writing produced literature and 29 volumes of literature and conversations from a apparent 17th century English woman named Patience Worth. And what's interesting about her productions is that the writings were all in a kind of archaic Anglo-Saxon dialect of one of varying degrees of archaic, including dialects that had never really been spoken as far as we know. Hmm. Um, and again, this is a, another kind of creative tour de force that we saw that went on for almost 25 years. And her creativity, I think, is unprecedented in literary history and her ability to improvise 600-page novels uh, without ever making a correction and being able to leave off and come back days and weeks later exactly where she left off. Wow. And obviously, this is before the internet or any of that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which gets my mind to thinking when you talk about, um, you know, optimal abilities of ours. If we were to take this to our, th- this idea to our everyday life, and we wanted to be able to be more creative, uh, to optimize, um, our abilities. What are your thoughts around that in terms of how we can access it or how we can move more into that? Boy, I wish I had a handle on that. <laughs> You'd be a very rich man. <laughs> uh, I mean, I just think how much better a philosopher and musician I'd be. Yeah, I do, right? Oh, for yourself. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, there has to be some, you know, immediately I think of, I think groups who do this well, it seems athletes seem to, right? Particularly Olympic athletes you hear about, um, you know, they tend to use visualization strongly. They tend to sort of start to access these other areas. Yes. I, I think more so than any other group of people. Musicians do it too, hmm. uh, especially if they have stage fright. Uh, you know, they get themselves in various kinds of states before performing. And what are those states? So what are some access points? Um, meditation, obviously, is one. Just giving themselves permission sometimes um, to be their best. But hypn- self-hypnosis is another road to all of this. And I think there's a very fine line between self-hypnosis and uh, various meditative practices, too. Really? Okay. Because self-hypnosis looks like what? I don't know what self-hypnosis looks like. Well, I'm not sure I know how to describe it to you. Mm. Um, But it's placing yourself in a dissociated state of one kind or another where um, you are able to put your fears and resistances, as it were, to one side and just move ahead. Mm. And I think there are various ways of doing that. But if I were a life coach, maybe I could do that. But that's that's your domain. I know. (laughs) Maybe I need to add that to my toolbox. Um, (laughs) So uh, meditation, visualization, what are your thoughts on visualiza- visualization? Uh, it clearly works for some people, but not everybody's a good visualizer. So mm. I think we have to really tailor these uh, techniques to our own limitations and our own idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. I, wish I, I wish I had more of wisdom to say about that, but I really don't. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is in, in talking about this, um, 
of what we're really capable. I want to come back to this idea of life after death and also past lives. And you hear about past life regression. What are your, what are your thoughts on that in, you know, in that perhaps we know a language because we experienced it, you know, two lifetimes ago. What's, where's your stance on that? Well, I think we have to be very wary of past life regressions for all the reasons I've been talking about, because we know that hypnosis leads or allows for various kinds of unconscious creativity. Mm -hmm. And there have been careful experiments done with this, where um, many of them conducted by Martin Orne at Harvard. Orne, for example, regressed the subject to, I think it was the age of six, and asked him to write down various sentences which he dictated. And the subject wrote in a very childlike kind of scrawl, but somehow managed to spell correctly all the polysyllabic words which no six-year-old would ever know. Mm. Um, and there are similar kinds of indications from Warren's experiments that the people who are apparently hypnotically regressed aren't actually regressed at all. They're just exhibiting various kinds of creative dramatic behavior. And... I think in hypnotic states, when we're doing past life regressions, you have to be extremely alert for exactly that. It could be that hypnosis unleashes various kinds of um, ESP that wouldn't be occurring, and we've known about that since the time of Franz Mesmer. Um, Mesmer discovered early on that uh, his magnetized or hypnotized patients were able um, to diagnose illnesses and no remote states of affairs. So we know there's a correlation between uh, hypnosis and uh, psychic functioning. And I would say that uh, the evidence from of past lives from hypnotic regressions is probably the uh, among the least impressive bodies of evidence huh. for that reason, yes. Hmm. Do you personally believe in past lives? Um, depends on which day you ask me. Okay. Um, <laughs> today... Uh, let me put it this way. I, I find some cases emotionally very compelling. Mm -hmm. But if you were to ask me, can we mount a successful scientific explanation or defense of the claims f uh, made by survivalists, I would say it's almost impossible to do. And the reason it's almost impossible to do is that it's almost impossible to rule out explanations in terms of refined psychic functioning among the living. Mm. And in your research of life after death, how does that relate to this idea of, of um, the sort of scientific studies that you found from a scientific standpoint? What have you discovered in life after death? Well, I'd say what I've discovered is um, part of what I learned to appreciate when I studied multiple personality, and that is just how living, how interesting living human beings are, mm -hmm. because in order to do a decent job of mounting a scientific case for life after death, you really have to take seriously the possible counter explanations. And the best of these counter explanations are in terms of what I call the unusual suspects. And these would be various kinds of um, abnormal states or very rare states like savantism or um, the kinds of abilities we see in prodigies. I mean, we know that prodigies without any um, practice exhibit abilities far beyond what most people are capable of doing. And we don't understand how that happens. So we don't really understand quite a lot of what living human beings are able to do in non-survivalist contexts. 
And until we start taking that seriously, and until we start looking seriously at the possibility of extreme kinds of psychic functioning among the living, which simulates evidence for survival, we can't mount a successful case for survival. And what people who talk about survival don't realize is that they actually have to posit various kinds of refined psychic functioning just to explain their evidence. So when you look at mediumship, for instance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when a medium says, I'm talking to your uh, Uncle Harry right now, and Uncle Harry wants to say he's very happy to know you like your new job. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of psychic functioning going on there to explain how the medium and Uncle Harry are communicating. That's telepathy. Mm -hmm. To explain how Uncle Harry knows about your new job, that's going to be in terms of ESP of one kind or another. So just to explain how, media, how evidence for mediumship arises, we have to posit lots of refined ESP happening between the medium and the deceased and between the deceased and what's going on in the, the physical world now. Mm -hmm. So once we've opened that Pandora's box, we have to be prepared to allow for the possibility that the medium is getting the information also from the living. Ah, I see. Got it. Mm -hmm. And nothing to do with Uncle Harry. Right. Potentially. Right. As long as the information that we're getting is verifiable, it's there accessible by ESP. Have you looked at um, Dr. Julie Beichel of the Windbridge Institute? Sure. Right. Okay. Um, so her study of, of mediums. And so what are, what is your thoughts on that? Is that to what, to your point that it could be all ESP? Um, Absolutely. I don't yeah. think she's ruled it out. Yeah. I don't think it's possible to rule it out. No, you're right. I mean, when you think about it in those terms, you're absolutely right. So the only thing that I think would lead us to a, a slam dunk case of survival that so good that it would be literally irrational to reject it. Um, it the case would have to be ideal in a number of ways, which few, if any, cases even approximate. Uh, at the end of um, Immortal Remains, I give examples of a couple kind of ideal cases, and uh, an ideal reincarnation case and an ideal case of mediumship. And we've seen really nothing quite approximating it. Um, shifting a little bit, I'd love to hear... Um, one of the topics I know you're also interested in is synchronicity. Yes. Uh, which I, I also really enjoy thinking about and talking about. Um, what got your interest in, into synchronicity and what's your current take on it? Well, having a few synchronistic events uh, certainly helped. Mm -hmm. um, my take on it is very unpopular, I think. Mm -hmm. and it's that synchronicities are probably produced by the person who's having the synchronicity, that it's a kind of macro-psychokinetic rearranging of events to um, be meaningful for us in a way. So something happens, we want it. So for example, somebody was just on my mind. This actually happened this morning. I ran into them at the grocery store. Lo and behold, I've never run to them at the grocery store. Um, so my mind tells me that that's a coincidence and synchronicity and I make it to mean more than it actually. Well, that's certainly a possibility. That, okay. I mean, there, there could have been some ESP going on there and you attached a lot of meaning to it. I mean, it, it's hard to know which ones are the, the coincidences and which ones are not. Um, there was a, 
a parapsychologist a number of years ago who thought the universe was a was a punster mm-hmm. and that synchronicities always took the form of puns of one kind or another. Now, she was someone who happens to really like puns. Mm-hmm. And so for her, her synchronicities always were very pun-friendly, let's say. Mm-hmm. I My guess about all of this is that um, she played a role in arranging things so that events fell out in those particular ways for her. Because it makes no sense, for the same reason, actually, that memory trace theory is incoherent. It makes no sense to say that the universe is arranging um, these things for us. Because Jung's idea was that synchronicities are a-causal, they're Mm non-caused. But if they're non-caused, how is it that meaningful events are put together in meaningful clusters? What determines the meaning of an event? The universe doesn't determine that. Events aren't intrinsically meaningful or unmeaningful. Mm -hmm. We attach meaning to events. Mm -hmm. So unless you're going to attribute the actual cause of all this to God, Mm -hmm. which is not what the theory of synchronicity is all about, the only person who could possibly be attaching meaning to events would be the person for whom there's a synchronicity. And so my guess is that synchronicities, when they're genuine and not just coincidental, mm-hmm. literally coincidental, they're things that we arrange for ourselves. And is that through, um, and obviously when it's involving another person, then is there something happening between our two minds that is bringing it together at a subconscious level? Well, if you're, asking what kinds of lower level psychic activities might bring it about. It could be psychokinetic. It could be telepathic influence. Those are among the possibilities. Mm -hmm. But you're now, okay. So now we start to move into a bit into the idea of, you know, people talk about law of attraction, manifesting, et cetera. Does, is, is this a natural foray into that, that we create Um, our reality? To some extent, yes. And my only caveat here would be, and you can think of me as a spokesperson for the dark side. Okay. (laughs) Um, I mean, people usually like to think about when they raise that possibility of making our own, creating our own reality, they like to think about benign versions of that, you know, like healing through prayer or Mm -hmm. uh, meditating for world peace. Mm -hmm. But there is a dark side to this. Okay. It's very easy to see with psychokinesis. I mean, if I can make a a pencil move a millimeter by thought alone, it's a very small step conceptually from doing that to making somebody drop dead by thought alone. So the existence of any psychokinesis at all forces us to take seriously a kind of magical worldview that most of us associate usually just with uh, so-called primitive cultures. And it's a worldview where our thoughts can have all sorts of malevolent, if not lethal, consequences and where we'd have to take responsibility for a range of things most of us would just as soon be bystanders for. So we we all have nasty thoughts. Uh Very few of us are saints. Mm -hmm. And most people in industrialized or developed countries don't like the idea that their unconscious nasty thoughts might have actually done damage to somebody. Mm. There are parts of the world where that's taken for granted and people just live with it. Um, But not so much in industrialized or developed countries. So, for example, if we take um, ISIS or, um, dare I say, Donald Trump being into, <laughs> if we were to take, let's take ISIS, um, that as a collective psyche, we have almost, I don't want to say willed them into being 
with our thoughts of fear, thoughts of, I don't know, is that? That's a kind of grand version. I had something a little more pedestrian. In okay. Uh, I mean, suppose you have a nasty thought about a person and that person has a car accident. Okay. Um, most of us would be pretty uncomfortable with the idea that we might have played a role in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, another version of this is that our, you know, I often suggest that parapsychologists should take a look at uh, people who are unusually lucky or unlucky. And I think unlucky people are particularly interesting. And I was once married to someone whose entire family was like a lightning rod for misfortune. Hmm. And there are several ways of looking at this. You know, our misfortune could be a kind of externalized analog to psychosomatic ailments. We can make ourselves sick. We know that very well. Yep. Um, we could make ourselves unfortunate <laughs> as well, I think. Um, the other nasty version of this is that somebody could be doing it to us. Hmm. And those are among the possibilities. I don't want to deny the, the good side, the benign side to all of this. But I don't think we, you know, I don't know of any force that can be used entirely for the good. I mean, all of this comes to that the power of our mind and the power of our thoughts is something that we aren't even close to understanding. That's safe. Yes. That's safe to say. Yes. And so and we're not much closer now than we were a hundred years ago. Do you think we will get there? You're asking a jaded philosopher. <laughs> I have no idea. So for people listening, let's say they're driving in their car right now, they're listening to this and they hear about the power of their thoughts. How can they, you know, I, I always like to give sort of a takeaway of what, how to apply this to your everyday life um, on a positive note. What would you leave them with? Wow. Um Try to clean up your act. Uh, in your in terms of your thoughts, you mean? Yes, but you know, I I'm not entirely optimistic about how easy that is. We still have an unconscious, and mm-hmm. it's a repository, and I think a healthy repository for um, some of our weaknesses and the the least positive sides of ourselves, and they're always there. Mm-hmm. So be mindful of that. Yes, to, as much as possible. Uh huh. And then, and be just notice, noticing your thoughts. I mean, I think I've heard what, that we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day. Is that right? 90% are the same thoughts we had yesterday. Is that? I I haven't heard that. You haven't heard that? (laughs) Yeah. You haven't counted. (laughs) Well, that's, I think that's, that's something that's, I see thrown around a lot, but um, I think even just taking a moment and noticing your thoughts is an exercise that's well worth exploring. And I think our conversation from your perspective in um, looking at the psychokinesis part of it um, makes you even want to be more mindful of it. I would think so. And, you know, it's at this point that I'd be happy to defer to you because that's your expertise. All right. Well, there you go. All right. So Stephen, thank you for this is fascinating. Um, For people who want to learn more about you, um, where should they head? The easiest website to go is not my university website, because unless you're a URL savant, you'll never remember it. (laughs) Um, But I I have a a whimsical website. It's jazzphilosopher.com. It's easy to remember. Great. And it has links to all my other stuff. Great. And we didn't even get into music, which maybe we could do that at another time because I I think that is also very interesting. Well, thank you so much for your wisdom, your thoughts. um, Very, very thought-provoking and um, very much appreciate your time.
Thank you. All right. Thanks, Stephen. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash cosmos in you or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is cosmos in you. And of course, at our website, cosmos in Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.